I got to tell you, Paul, I think I'm feeling like it's time for another episode of Track Changes. Me too. There is more to cover. This is crazy. Sometimes we take public transit together. We often eat together. We work together. and We're co-founders of the company. We are in alignment on this. Hells yeah. It's time for us to have another episode of Track Changes, the yep. official podcast of the Postlight product design studio. Yep. Postlight. What's Postlight, Paul? Well, I'll tell you. My name's Paul Ford. Rich Ziotti. And... People come to me and they say things like, Paul, someone just asked me, can you get an app built that will let me identify every baby turtle in New York City? And I'll say, honestly, I can. I can do that. But you're going to need to build a back-end service so that we can efficiently track all the baby turtles. Turtle API. Yeah, turtle API. And you're also going to need to, like, are we going to just take pictures of turtles and log that? Or are we going to, are the turtles have names? These are the questions I like to talk about people. Like, just, I like to figure this stuff out. Yep. We're a tech we are, product shop. We design and build platforms we're and gonna, the apps that run on them. We're going to make you a beautiful thing that you can use on your phone or on the web browser, but we're also going to we're going to make the the big infrastructure and plumbing underneath it. Yep. Any questions, just get in touch, contact at postlight.com. We're glad to talk to you. So look, here in the studio we have Jessica Helfen and Michael Barut. Mm-hmm. Do you know who they are? I do, but Maybe maybe share if someone, once more. On the off chance that somebody didn't hear last week's episode, uh, I'll give a I'll give a little bio. Michael Barut and Jessica Helfand are two of the founders of the Design Observer blog, which mm-hmm. is one of the media properties that knits together the design community yep. globally and in New York City. Uh, and they host a podcast called The Observatory. And they're both very noted authors. And Jessica teaches at Yale. And Michael is a very high up at Pentagram, very well-known design studio. He also sure. teaches. And they're... They're collaborators. They're people who, re- they work together, they think together. And, they teach together. Uh, and they teach together. So that's what we're going to talk about. Great. One of the reasons that I'm specifically a designer and not an artist is because I, I had like art ability when I was a kid. I could like draw and people would say, wow, did you draw that? And I would like be really <laughs> proud of it. And I would uh, sometimes, as, right. as Jessica well knows, be able to evade or delay getting beaten up just because I could draw well. <laughs> what I learned though was that the artists that I knew, I would go to the art museum and I see paintings on the wall and they were beautiful. But then I thought, well, so artists, this is what artists do. They paint things and then they end up in places like this. But then I would like be in a, you know, a record store and look at LP covers and think, well, some other kind of artists do this and you don't have to go to the museum. And in fact, there are lots of copies of, yeah. you know, Abraxas by Santana or whatever you are, you know. Whatever record with or or revolver I'm by the Beatles. That cover. Yeah, I know, I know that you know what cover, I'm talking yeah. about, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great cover. Um, and and I thought, you know, that's the kind of artist I want to be. And I also had these other ideas that were actually turned out to be sort of true. I mean, uh, the guy that did the cover for Revolver by the Beatles, who I think is Klaus Vormann, actually was a musician who played on tracks with Stones and with you know. And I thought, well, you know, you, you're not alone in the middle of nowhere. You're actually sort of like the fifth Beatle, or you're. Um, even though you're not on stage, you get to do the poster. You sort of are somehow participating in this larger thing. And then I think it leads to what uh, you were saying, Paul. You get that thrill of seeing your thing out in the world and sort of feeling deliciously like you've lost control of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know. It resets your your community identity a little bit. Yeah, like yeah. you're suddenly you're playing on a different field. They were like, Maybe they weren't taking Michael as seriously before, but then they're like, everyone now knows what you can do. To a certain degree, except if you, depending on what it is you do, I mean, I, my mother-in-law can't 
you know, I remember my wife just patiently trying to explain to her that I had quote unquote designed the bags for Saks Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I could see her like looking at the bags for Saks Fifth Avenue and her being able to understand what given that it didn't have like a drawing like of a unicorn on the front of it that looked hard to do it was a bag with like a handle and all this other stuff you know and sort of like did okay. you do the handle <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so, so she was very polite and she was saying oh that's nice and i could tell she had no idea what mm-hmm. i did so i i think but on the other hand i still remember we worked on that for nine months and i remember getting on the subway and suddenly someone else got on that train. They were hold- it was the first time I'd ever seen like a person I didn't know mm-hmm. holding that bag. And and I almost like wanted to like run up and, you know, say something. You know, hey I'm mugging you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a weird guy who's gonna overreact to I mean, that's my, that's deeply shopping bag. Yeah. That, that's incredibly satisfying, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever you ever create as I mean, you've got three very talented people yeah. in front of me. Uh, I'm gonna go around the room. You ever created something that you found just right there, you and this subject in the room, deeply satisfying, that wasn't well-received, that finally got out into the world, and, you, and the score wasn't that great, but was incredibly gratifying and satisfying to you? Yeah, so, so my short answer is that the best thing I ever designed got killed, and I have shown it for 20 years in lectures. Because I think it actually represents a really interesting idea into form situation. Yeah. That uh, it was a thing I did for Newsweek. Yeah. When Newsweek first had a blog, their big question was, how can we be daily and timely but still be a weekly? Uh-huh. And I took the word news and the word week, and I split the screen, and we did two feeds. And so half the like the newsworthy, the, the hourly, month, whatever, came on yeah, the yeah, news yeah. side. And mm-hmm. the thing it said week was just the weekly content. And it was mm-hmm. just a simple geometric split mm-hmm. to create this bifurcated screen. Yeah. And one was red type on a white background, and one was white type on a red background. <laughs> I was yeah. like, it was like brilliant, my great <laughs> moment of design <laughs> brilliance. Too easy, and too easy, and yeah. my client got canned and I got canned and, and that was the end of that. But if I can just pull back for one second, I, I think that it's one thing for us to identify professionally as people whose work represents us and makes the world better and we're part of a community and we have clients and there's money being exchanged, fine. But as an educator, I worry that what you're talking about, Rich, in terms of that barometer of being liked. Feedback and being liked, yeah. yeah. It is such, a, it is a mechanism that is doomed to fail. And the reason it is doomed to fail is because it sends a message to like <laughs> the youth of the world that that's where success lies. Right. So they, right. Can, they can say, I'm a designer for public good. I'm, I'm a social entrepreneur. But then they're sitting there worrying about who's liking them. And I just think that, and that's why I wrote this book. The, the book is trying to look at where we as human beings connect to our, our roles as design ambassadors, mm-hmm. as communication advocates. But, you know, at the end of the day, as parents and children of people and, and siblings of people and people who are, you know, citizens of the world who have to think about paying it forward in a different way. Yeah. So but, but, the, but, the concern about that visual culture yeah. that inculcates I mean, in all of us that, you know, you have to be thumbs up is, is I think, a dangerous But right. Jessica, nonetheless, though, I think to Rich's point, when you design something and you know it's right, that sense of confidence does give you a safe haven, whether or not you're doing it privately or whether you're doing it publicly. To me, that sort of is part of what growing as a designer or a creator is and part of educating designers and people that make things is kind of helping them find that thing within themselves that gives them a secure place to sort of say, this is where I am, this is where I stand. Now, they can go and do that in private for decades, or they can get out there and do that in public day after day. And I think if all you're counting on are the likes, you're going to just end up 
being well, miserable. But, but you, know, I mean, you have that, to be miserable. Right. Yeah. So, so there's also a certain number of people in the world who become designers because they want to do things that are cool or subversive. And this is where I take great issue with words like hacking and disruption because I think they're about it having an edge and that the positioning, the behavior privileges the, the thing that you do, not the making of the work, right? So we can't make people into you know, morally upstanding citizens. But we can crack down on this language and these these efforts to create a world for our students where what's being rewarded is some kind of meaningless kind of bully pulpit nonsense. Right. But also, you know, I mean, social media has changed all this anyway because I, exactly. as, as I often say, if someone would have told me in 1980 when I started my first job that there would be a time where New logos were discussed with the same enthusiasm as, you know, baseball games or Academy Award shows. You know, people would literally, like, be taking the time to kind of, like, say, I, I like it, I don't like it. I would have been like, what a great world where everyone cares about logos as much yeah. as I do, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, now we live in that world where, uh, you know, every time I design a new identity for something, I will, I mean. I'm, Bra- brace yourself. I brace myself and yeah. I tell my clients to brace themselves and everyone's got to brace themselves. You've written about this, Paul. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. In and, particular, that there was a Gap logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, was, yeah. A, it was a rebrand Fury. of Gap <laughs> and it just blew up the internet. Yeah. And it's actually, it, it, I mean, it's really a weird thing when you think about What's happening there? And I think in, in the you wrote something for New York Magazine, as I mm-hmm. recall, right? That's and right. I remember, like you actually identified that it just shows that these brands actually work, and consumers come to identify themselves with the brands and come to think that somehow they own them as much as well, the, the shareholders of the Gap. Isn't that you know? flattering? Yes, it, yeah, it is. It is very flattering and, uh, and uh, unnerving, and, and very unnerving. Exactly. Yeah. We haven't fully internalized the brand as entity in our culture yet. Like it, yeah, it is. The brand is ultimately now the company and and sort of we all work within the framework set by it. Like, it's very strange. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more it feels like that is the dominant entity in our culture. It's the thing that's moving well, Wasn't that around. groveling happening, you know, in barbershops? We just built the mic. You yeah, but never about... Nobody was ever walked into a barbershop and was like, you can you believe one? the gap? With that their, ugly yeah. logo. Yeah, I was just, that was, <laughs> no, I... <laughs> And, you know, in fact, I um, I wrote an essay about this in which I, I, I remember I quoted your New York Magazine piece. But the way I began it was this little thought experiment where I was, like, trying to picture my dad in, like, 1967 or so. And a neighbor approaches him, you know, at our backyard fence on a Saturday and says, hey, Lenny, you seen that new logo? And my dad would be like, what? And you say, yeah, they changed that logo. The company changed their logo. He says, well... I guess I, I didn't. I don't, I'm not sure I noticed. He said, "Well, you should check it out because what they did is terrible." <laughs> and my dad would be really he says, "Yeah, in fact, I'm going to write to them and send and send a letter to make my views known. We should all do that." My dad at this point would literally go to my mom and say, "I think something's really wrong with our neighbor, and sure. we should and debate whether they should." call someone about getting him help because <laughs> only a crazy person would think those things. And right. now everyone thinks those things. So. I, I think we've just created beautiful forms that create a vacuum for opinions that never before existed. We're extracting opinions out of people like some sort of strange lymph. Like yeah. we're just sort of pulling them out because they're going to drive these giant enterprises. Like it, it's Amazon and yeah. it's it's Twitter. If you don't have opinions on Twitter, you just have Bon Mo's, and it's not that it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's right. Just but dry. but yep. you know, it, it's so revealing to me what people say next to their names on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know whether it's Jimmy Fallon or one of the late night talk hosts. His thing is astrophysicist. Like yeah. because why? <laughs> you know, everybody is just such. Everybody's yeah. hashtag this and you know acronyms, and 
it started to really irk me how people describe themselves. And this is an odd thing, but to me, consistent with the irksome nature of people's kind of self-aggrandizement on Twitter is if you listen to The Moth, and I love The Moth, sure. I'm, I'm obsessed with The Moth, but when they introduce speakers, uh, people before they're on stage, they tell you a little bit about them, and these people are complete unknowns. Mm -hmm. And then they, they tell you who they are, and they don't tell you their whole name. So, you know, there's Joe Blow, and he's like, you know, whatever, and he's going to get on stage, and they say, Joe Blow, blah, 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 here's Joe. Like, when did he just become Joe? He doesn't Joe have a whole, like, yeah. like suddenly, to me, that is <laughs> secretly elevating that guy for those five minutes he's sure. on stage to a 15 seconds of fame thing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's like people calling Obama Barack. I just, it makes me crazy. That becomes a kind of Is currency. this good? Is no. this bad or is this good? Well, well, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of different. No, things. Here's, I hate it. Here's what I okay. think is funny is that he's the peacekeeper. I'm the naysayer. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Works yeah. for us. No, your 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 tiresome outrage is uh, he's perfectly understandable. He's literally uh, peacekeeping ironically <laughs> right now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a problem. No, no what's definitely true though, and which what I think is disconcerting, and we haven't quite figured out what it all means yeah. is when. Harold Ross decided to start The New Yorker. You know, he wrote like a, a proposal for what The New Yorker magazine would be. And in that proposal, he sort of is describing what will be in it, what kind of magazine it is, who he imagines the reader is going to be, you know, how that reader will be reached, who it's for, who it's not for. It's this very deliberate thing that required at that point, you know, a, a lot of forethought and then in order, in fact, to kind of cause a magazine to be built and printed and published, he needed you know, investors, and he made this thing so he'd be able to raise the money and then put the whole thing out, and it ended up being sort of this thing that still continues this very day. Nowadays, every single person on a Twitter thing is going through a similar kind of process when they sort of describe how they're going to write themselves, what they're going to tweet, what they're going to retweet. Each one of them is like a Harold Ross or a Henry Luce, or each one of them is like a publisher now. And, the, and that used to not be possible. You could decide what kind of hat you would wear. Am I the kind of person who... Do I want to get a nose ring or not? Or you know, you'd have these like you'd have these things about personal presentation, but it always, almost always, had to do with people you would be in personal contact with. Am I the kind of person with a firm handshake, or am I gonna? I don't, you know, you sort of would make these decisions that you either were taught as part of manners or learned in school well, or imitating people admire. They're interact personal right. interactions. Now, because everyone has the potential, at least, to communicate to a mass audience, even if you only have 20 followers or 200 followers or 2,000 followers on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or anything, everyone's making these calculations all the time. And so it's, it ends up being a really strange world where people both, presumably have authentic identities and they're also constantly kind of broadcasting broadcasting this thing to strangers and with a very calculated effect with with instant feedback that lets them know whether or not they're getting through you know yeah. how many likes did i get how many you know shares did i get etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah but I, I feel that playing with those different modes has like i write differently for Business week than I do for myself, and and there's actually kind of a give and take. Like there are certain things I've done. I remember I wrote a piece about the reason I have twins is is we did IVF, and so I wrote a piece about that about about the the egg retrieval, and I knew that I was like I I knew that there were editors at large magazines who were going to be pissed at me for giving it to like a little online publication, mm -hmm. but I knew it would find the right audience and that it would have the right 
the right community would, would be around it. And I knew also that the editor there was going to let me keep the structure the way it needed to be. And it's one of the, it's probably the only time in my life where I was like, I can't have anyone mess with this. Yeah. So there's like five or six things going on here around traffic, around um, the sense of audience, where it's going to get found. And I got five emails that week saying, why the hell didn't you give me that? That's exactly the sort of thing I want. And it, you can't go back and say like, no, you wouldn't have actually published that. You would have done these three things to it. I know you very well. And so there's aspects of control there. And there's also aspects of, of gaming it where changing tone, changing the publication. Now, obviously, I think we all have a lot of control over how we present ourselves in the world, more than a, somebody who's just sitting down with Twitter for the first time. But I do find that fascinating. Can I mess with voice and yeah. get another 100,000 reads on this? And what does that mean? And is that good? It may not be. I've had those situations too where I'm like, I turned that dial and I got exactly the feedback I predicted and I feel gross and bad about it. So let's not do it that way. And so I think there is a little give and take. There is a little more intent. There's a little more understanding of how these systems work. I think that unfortunately the motivation in the systems is designed in such a way that people make often negative and, and harmful decisions for themselves and their communities because it's just this very like... It's very rat and pellet. It's, it's, what did you say, biscuits for tricks? Yeah, yeah. Tricks for biscuits. So we've created the tricks for bis biscuits, like content ecosystem. <sighs> Rich and I talk about this a lot. Like, what could you do? What kind of technologies could get you past that? Sometimes mm. it's just taking the number away. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it is just sort of localizing the communication. Not well, there are these camps in upstate. I think they're in many places. They're like these rural camps where there's not much to them. They don't advertise a whole lot other than the fact that they're going to take your phone. Uh, when you get there, and you've got executives and really, you know, prominent people who are very busy days and are on their phones and on email all the time. They take your phone and they put you with strangers. You can't go with a friend, and you're going to build something together. Mm -hmm. And it could be a woodworking over a long weekend. And people come. I've I met one person, and I've heard about it through others. Uh, but I met one person who came out of it. They couldn't put into words how they felt so differently about not being connected and not having, feeling the need to talk into a channel, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but instead actually have to pause and take your time to have a face-to-face mm -hmm. -face conversation. I mean, all of that. There's like sort of this reaction that's happening right now around it. I mean, we're you guys are creative, so you're in a funky spot because you're putting stuff out into the world but at a whole other level. I mean, most are just sort of like, hey, I made good cinnamon rolls. Check That's them out. That's creative. Good I cinnamon mean, rolls yeah, worth yeah. Fair enough. 10 logos, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. But <laughs> there, is this, there is this, I mean, that's, I think, the other bit of it is you, if you are trying to become a creative, you're sort of trying to fall into this river of stuff that yeah. is just overwhelming everything, right? And, and how do I bubble up and how do I get noticed? I mean, I go to band, you guys know the site Bandcamp? Yeah, I do. It'll let anyone on. If you have a band, you can upload your music and you can sell them. You actually, I think, can pick the price. It could be a dollar yeah. a track. It yeah. could be $2 a track. But it's truly in support of independent musicians in a way that Spotify or Apple are yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. So. Direct to your fans. And I, go, I love going on there and it makes me sad because everybody is trying to somehow get noticed in this place. And it's a really big, there's a lot of people there. And there's good stuff there. And I, when I find something I like, I tend to... I don't even need the tracks. They're somewhere. They're on <laughs> Spotify anyway. I'll just give them the 10 bucks. Yeah. But it's, it's really hard. What are the mechanisms to somehow get bubbled up, right? I mean, if you fall and record it on a phone, that might get a couple hundred thousand views on YouTube. There's this video 
of this little three-year-old boy rapping fake words. Mm-hmm. And his dad's an actual rapper musician. And he's trying to, his dad is a, trying to make it. His son, with this adorable video, has, has millions of views. And his dad's music on YouTube has 80,000 views, right? <laughs> so this, this guy has poured his life into being an artist, but his kid looks too cute on YouTube. Yeah. And that tipped. Yeah. And so he has like a million views? The yeah. kid? Yeah. Millions. <laughs> yeah. He's like a phenom. Yeah, yeah. But the poor dad is trying to somehow crack <laughs> crack the ceiling and he just, yeah. you know. Stuck. These are new situations. Like, that's hard to puzzle through. I, I'd feel weird if my four, I'd probably four and a have, half year old son just suddenly was I'd like. I'd probably pour all sorts of insecurities into the child. I would ruin that child. <laughs> that child would end up a dysfunctional adult. I'd like to think I'm better, but. <laughs> no, but it, it is actually really difficult seeking an audience in a way. And I think, I mean, one, I have a question for you, Paul. When you first decided you wanted to write that story, mm-hmm. why? Uh, it was actually very specific. So here I am. I've been a writer for a while. We were in the middle of IVF, trying to conceive after several years. And I was looking at my wife and just thinking like, no one, it's, it's actually a surprisingly untold story, particularly by men. And when you see it told by men, a few times I've seen it, it's a very, it's kind of whiny. Mm-hmm. It's like, I had to go in a room and there was a cup. It's just very like intimate, like slice of life stuff. And it had nothing to do with the actual sort of long-term slog and the, the class issues, the sense of selfishness, all the stuff that's coming up, the ambiguity, the people who were critical, the, the kind of acceptance that you had to come to. So I, I made a deal with myself that once we got through it, which in this case meant pregnancy, it might not have, I would document that. Mm. And I truly remember um, how much I didn't want to write it when I sat down. And I've noticed I'm very aware of these kind of narratives because I've written one and, and it got a lot of response. There have been very few following on. What happened is in, in the first pass, I would say a dozen male friends got in touch and said, no idea. We've been doing it too. Mm-hmm. And, and it just all these things started to surface. And then I, not as much anymore, but I would say for, for about three years, I would just get like one email yeah. a week uh, or more. And it was also sort of like I knew I would be judged. And I watched message boards that I am, you know, communities I've been in and out of for years. I watched them just sort of tear me and my wife apart mm-hmm. and, and sort of it's like. unbelievable, isn't it? Well, but that's a fascinating. Fa- so first of all, that there are community boards for anybody going through. You know, my husband was was terminally ill. I didn't really want to talk to my friends about it because they didn't have husbands who were terminally ill. Right. And you find this stuff online and you think, you know, there's something kind of great about the anonymity of it. I wanted to clobber some of these people because they couldn't write well. (laughs) And other ones who were, you know, cleaving to ridiculous ideas about science that were not scientific. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you realize that there's a that's a very interesting technological mechanism that supports an emotional truth that we don't talk about. That's right. And the second thing I wanted to say is that I wrote something very personal this year about changing my legal name. I had the same name as my kids because we traveled all over the world together and mm-hmm. I wanted our passports to match. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, two and a half years later, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, my kids are older. I don't need this. And it was just phenomenally difficult to go back to my maiden name. It cost mm-hmm. me money. I had to have lawyers. I had to have a probate hearing. I felt like I was divorcing myself. <laughs> and I was having dinner one night with a friend and she said, you ought to write about this. And I, I went back to my studio and I stayed up all night and I wrote this thing and I pu- had it published in Slate on Mother's day sure sure and it got a ton of traffic but the comments were really nasty some of them and they were criticizing me for why did you change your name in the first place and this is so old it had nothing to do Mm. with the fact that 
my kids lost their father, the fact that this was a, the mechanics of finding your identity through the court system, even if you're a reasonably educated person, as I am, was very confusing and expensive. And there was no, there was no support. So when you say that after you went through something personal and wrote about it, using the, the channels uh, uh, available to you that people were critical. It's un- really, when you think about it, it's really unbelievable. It is, although, so I'll, two observations there. One is um, Slate for a while had me write Mad Men recaps, and that comment section is like the... Brutal. Fe- yeah, FEMA trailers of the internet. <laughs> just <laughs> on fire. And, um, but yeah, no, it's, you know, there was, I was an editor at Harper's Magazine for years, and I remember one of the, uh, the literary editors just said, look, if you want to understand the sensibility of this place, like, people have all kinds of opinions about it, but ultimately we're writing for adults. Like, we are editing and we're writing for adults. And then another friend of mine once took me, we were, I think I was like 22, and I was talking about some, you know, entanglement, and she was just like, adults have adult problems. And it's complicated and it's difficult and it's not going to be ideologically sound. And there is a desire to get other human beings to map into an ideological model and an almost like mm. primal rage that they don't. And, and it's yeah, almost, yeah. you wow. see it with the logos. Like you see it with like the form in my mind that I use to control and understand and live my life day to day. This person has violated it. Now, if you met them, if you were like getting on the bus together, they'd be like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. But by writing it down, mm-hmm. by actually sort of engaging with the form, you just set off all these negative stimuli. You know, all this negative stimulus is just like pouring mm-hmm. out of the words for them. And they've completely lost the ability to identify the human being. And the weird thing is that we're also trying to do that a little bit as when we're when you're doing criticism. You have to look at the work. And it, it's a, like a muddled, bad version of that. The tools don't support the commenting tools. The systems really that puzzle was never solved. I mean, we don't support like basic human warmth and identity. No, you know, on the other side for somebody typing into that box, we make it so easy for them to think a thought and and act on it in an incredibly negative way. That's actually kind of damaging to the person who originates the story. And so, Mm -hmm. I'm rambling, but like the thing that to me defines the internet in terms of how people communicate is the long-term, there's a defensiveness in the pro style. I am very, very good. I can wade into most arguments, chat, talk about whatever, wander out, and everyone's like, what a nice fellow. And that's learned over 20 years. I don't get yelled at anymore because I'm really good at it. I still think all the thoughts that would piss off everybody. And when I go and give a lecture and the, and the, the students ask me about you know, various sort of current cultural theories, I just wing it because I know how to get through it. My dad was a prof. My mom fought local civil, civil rights. I've been trained from birth to be a, like a good actor or to appear like a good yeah. actor. I could be a sociopath underneath, but I could still like play it out. So I look at the system around this stuff and the, the, the things that would encourage human vote. The thing that would encourage someone to think about blue for a couple months just doesn't exist. I think people do try to make it. Like people do try to make things that encourage that kind of thinking, but they get lost in the big, loud platforms. I, I think you're in a quasi-celebrity state when you post a 30-second video on YouTube. Yeah. YouTube is probably the most dramatic example of how awful it can get down in the comments. And I think that sort of dynamic is put in place just because of, hey, this wasn't sent to me. This was sent to, this was broadcast around the world. Mm-hmm. And you've crossed the red line. And I can say, 
everything's fair game. And I think the only place I found that really never got polluted that way was Metafilter. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's incredible. I mean, but that that's where they went to town on me about my wife. like. That's <laughs> the thing. I'm a member of that community, and but there was a point there where they started to write about my stuff, and I had to kind of become the other. Yeah, they have stuff to say, and I'm like, well, this is a normal thread for any other piece, but the fact that I'm here, like yeah. actually actively present, this makes me not want to be here anymore. Yeah. Yeah, but still, I mean, generally speaking, if you run into a Metafilter thread, it's, it's a pretty civilized place. And Well, it's because they charge that little bit to join, and then it is moderated. I think it's yeah. no, you're no long, It's no longer broadcast. It's yeah. no longer quasi-celebrity anymore. It's a club. I will say there is one pleasure in the YouTube comment section, which is the global disaster zone, where it's like someone says something, someone comments, and then another guy shows up, and it's just sort of like... Allah would have hard things to say about you. And then it just completely <laughs> devolves. Just goes yeah. right yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Like just from there. The <laughs> worst geopolitical <laughs> argument ever can happen in five seconds there. And it can just like turn into like a, a game of risk where someone has set the board on fire <laughs> and, and just is drinking whiskey. So what we have to talk about that's very, very important is that many of the things that we're talking about here, the community that you guys are building, the, the student relationships that you're trying to build are sort of being synthesized into a new program, also at Yale. What is the name of this program? Well, it doesn't have a name quite yet, although our internal cultural shorthand for it when we proposed it was to call it the Design Institute at the School of Management, which Michael quickly said translated into designism, which was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't bought into that quite yet. It's been taken. But the background is that they um, came to me about six months ago and said, we're looking for someone to teach design thinking. And I said, well, you've come to the wrong person. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and they called back. And they said, well, well, why not? I said, well, first of all, I know nothing about business. And they said, well, we know that, but that's not why we're asking you. We want you to teach this one thing. And I said, well, I think the opportunity is greater than teaching one thing. I think the mistake would be to be the East Coast version of the Stanford D School. Mm-hmm. And you're Yale. And if you want to have a conversation with Michael and me, we can sit down and talk about what is the intersection of the value design brings to business and the value business brings to design at a place like this at this moment. I think you have a really ripe opportunity to build something quite quite substantial. And they said, tell me more. And so I think Michael and I went several times. We talked to students. We talked to the faculty. We put together a proposal. And they made us these very lovely offers to join the faculty as the first faculty members in design. So we are teaching in the school of management. In the school of management. Okay. So my, you have to bear in mind here. There's about 600 students. There's several joint degree programs with I think architecture, public health, uh, forestry, school of drama, uh, you know, future theater managers, future law. forest yeah. managers, yeah. law. But you know, it's a really interesting place. It was it was started in the 70s. As, it's kind of um, really to train students for service. Uh, many of them go into governance. I sometimes say to people, it's like, it was like the Quaker school of business schools. Originally, they didn't give MBAs. They gave masters in policy and public management. I think it's called the School of Management, not called the School of Business. Is it only grad school? Or? It's yes, only no. grad okay. school. Okay. Um, wonderful new dean who's been there for, I guess, about five or six years now, who's really built a wonderful new Norman Foster building, state-of-the-art technology. But his view really excited us because he's very interested in two things that I think were were quite consistent with where we were coming from from Design Observer. One is that uh, it's a really exciting research university, and so how could you actually look thread through the the curriculum at the School of Management this larger humanities-based platform with all these other schools and all these facilities? Because a lot of times I would say 
their the silos. Point, the point of entry is engineering, let's say. Sure. So it's sort of like, okay, we have engineering, then how can we sort of conceive of this in some usually they think they're they're doing it as like forum language but then they learn it's about user experience and that kind of stuff right mm -hmm. but still because it's about engineering it tends to be product based and outcome based and stakeholder based and very sort of cut and yeah. dried and so the minute you start to look at other disciplines you realize the point of entry is more fluid and more more substantive because it's a hybrid you're looking at design in terms of its value to that particular industry and it's exciting at a place like Yale because you've got, you know, I don't know, 42 research libraries and collections and people from different walks of life who really can come and participate in a bigger conversation. So you're not, which is not to say they don't have a really serious curriculum in things like finance mm -hmm. that I certainly will never understand but have great admiration for. Um, <laughs> but the second thing is that they have built a sort of consortium of schools that are part of a global network. And so they're really deeply committed to teaching business in concert with a global, increasingly global world. So this, the world that these students, all of our students, but certainly these students, will inherit is not just American. It's not just East Coast. It's not just Ivy League. It's not elitist. It's complicated. It's multilingual. It's multigenerational. There are religious tensions. There are political tensions, all sorts of things that require of a student a kind of an understanding of a much bigger purview. That to me is the biggest surprise since we founded the company about mm -hmm. ten, 10 months ago is that we were assumed to be global by default. People started calling from yeah. you know, Singapore and India and saying like, well, what do you do and what are these things? And these were typical connections, but the, you know, the, the second degree of social network is suddenly global. It might yeah. be people I know in New York City, but then the next step yeah. out is, you know, is somewhere in Asia or, or around Europe. And Rich is Lebanese. Mm -hmm. And so we we also have that we have this sort of real flow, which is a shock to me. Like I just I just thought we were going to start like a nice little New York City agency, and I have to think much differently than I was expecting to. Okay, so that makes perfect sense. So they realized that what Michael and I are in a, in a sense approaching this like teaching design as a second language. They mm -hmm. realized that uh, we're not going to turn these people into designers, but their ability to work with designers to understand the value design brings to their projects and how, how to sort of parse that mm -hmm. as, as people who fundamentally come in through a very different channel, is that's the goal. Or even just simply take pleasure in it, be sensitive to it. You know, I think that there are various medical schools that teach music and art appreciation, just the idea that, uh, you know, a brain surgeon yeah. who actually is more attuned to that part of the world might be a better brain surgeon. I think in terms of business, you know, there's so much jargon, there's so many kind of models that, you know, like the, the whole idea of management has to do with, you know, taking all these unlike processes and trying to figure out, oh, they all conform to this basic Patterns, idea of supply and demand, or they all they all can be reduced to a SWOT diagram, or they can all be, you know, I mean, and, and there's enough evidence of people at business schools that kind of came up with a magic four-quadrant diagram that explained something and then became famous off it that everyone's on to the next one. With the, the, the thing from Silicon Valley, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the magic, the magic well, diagonal yeah, of change. Yeah, the, 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 the confluence of the, the two magic the triangles. Where was, yeah. right, so but, we're, we're banning post-it notes and whiteboards from our classes. We're, we're trying to, at least, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. None of that. What are, what are they? This means war. What are they going to work with? Tracing, tracing paper, paper pencils. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. We're Whoa. making this argument that tracing paper is actually a much more forgiving are substrate. They, do they have to write papers with like Letraset rub-off letters? <laughs> <laughs> That's extra credit. Okay. Yeah, extra credit. Yeah. 
Uh, Fancy covers on your report will get I'm, you an A. That I'm going to let the me. listeners Google those. That's just L E T R A S E T. Yeah. Go get a go get a nice pencil and a and a piece of paper. You'll figure it out. Okay. So where are they coming from? Who are these people as they're walking into this program? Oh, they're fascinating. They come from all over. We've got we've got students coming from the Navy. We've got students who studied uh, macroeconomics at Harvard. We've got students from all over the world. Students, um, who, so, uh, students who studied English literature, then worked for a nonprofit. Almost many of them, uh, I'd say maybe the vast majority of them have are not coming directly from undergraduate sure. school, but have worked somewhere between you know, wherever they got their first degree right. and not going for this graduate degree. This is often the case. But I think it's an incredibly diverse bunch of people with, I would also say, interestingly, a really diverse set of goals. Um, and so different from design students because, yeah. no, admittedly, there's a number of them who studied design in school and architecture in school. There's a huge appetite for design. There's huge recruitment efforts from large design and consulting firms for these students, and a lot of them are getting placed in places like Dahlberg and Deloitte and sure, um, sure. IDO. Oh, no, those organizations are feasting on right. this, like you know, McKinsey Labs and places right. like that. They can't get enough. Right, and these students are lining jobs up for themselves by January of their second year. I mean, they're really like the, the recruitment effort is huge. We've not seen this on the design and art side of things to quite the rigorous extent we're seeing. It's really they really have have it locked up. They they really have the it's game on mode for these sure. people. Yeah. So these people are coming in and they have had life experience that has made them say, I need just literally management skills. I need to understand sort of how to run teams, run a business, think about a marketing plan. Leadership. And, so and now there is a program for them where they can say I'm going to do that within the context of design. Yes. Some of them want to do that in the context of design. Some of them realize that the role they want to play as executives is at companies where design is really privileged. There's mm -hmm. certainly no shortage of design-driven companies. I would say a fair amount of Silicon Valley companies think of themselves as design-driven. These consultancies are now hiring people who have different kinds of skills. There's a huge huge faculty in organizational behavior at the School of Management. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's a really interesting, and they, they're, I, I just want to say this, surprising though it may be, these people are really creative no, no, in I the way they think about the world. No, so. I absolutely believe that. And I, mean, I, would say, I would say part of the interest in it is that, I, I think the, the fast way to think of it is that design just provides another way to think about problem solving. And I think people sort of understand that. I don't, th and I think what we'll discover in our class just because of the interest Which we should tell you about our class before we mm -hmm. go. What we find interesting is that I don't think it's reducible. I've been working long enough that I've – one of the most frustrating things that I have to do is sit with a potential new client and explain to them the process by which their thing will be done, going from today where nothing exists to one day where it's done and we're all, like, happy with it. At this point, I'll just say, you know, I'm like – this is a little bit of – fiction that I'll write that will all pretend it's going to go like this. And it might go like this. It hasn't up till now, but no, you know, who knows? Just by, you know, if I keep doing it long enough, I assume sooner or later it'll just come out that way. But it always goes another way. And it's not because of um, people's lack of discipline. It's not because of lack of rigor. It's not because the plan isn't sound enough to begin with. It's just because sort of more than many things, the process of design just is subject to human beings and human <laughs> beings reactions to things and i become better at it as i've sort of seen yeah. these different models play out and i think what we're going to try to do in the class is one of the things is 
expose the students to different kind of cases in the form of real personnel to come and talk about how they do it. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to learn is that it's really going to be confounding to sort of like figure out how design practice here is the same as design practice there as design practice there. And Michael, I decided we really want to show them the differential more than what, what unites them. Yeah. Actually let them figure out how to interpolate between these different things. So the class is called 12 Design Ideas That Change the World. Mm -hmm. We're teaching it in the fall and in the spring. We'll have 24 classes. We're going to be podcasting interviews with each of the speakers in the classes. So we'll have 24 episodes. Fun. Yeah. Uh, and really it's to look at a range of industries and to bring in a client or a designer or a client and a designer every week to examine some project or initiative or problem in which the transformative change catalyst come to Jesus moment was visual or design driven. Mm -hmm. And this is everything from public health to public space, entertainment. We're bringing in three people from Broadway to talk about creating a musical where the visual mise-en-scene changed the way they thought about the narrative. But, but very industry specific to each of these things, and each of these stories, of course, is is very specific to individuals but, but, involved. But, but the specificity and uniqueness of each of them aside, what will happen is that if you listen to how people put together a Broadway show, even if you have no intention of going into theater, theater or entertainment, there's iteration, there's a deadline, there's collaboration, there's revision, there's... There's uh, paying attention to the cadences of the way people speak. Yeah, there, and there's, honoring there's that. an audience. There's you know a feedback loop. There are all these things. It's the same as like launching a um, you know. And we thought an so. App, you know, you know we've got thing. Danny Meyer coming in with Paula Sher to talk about the Shake Shack. Talk about the future of hospitality sure. and food. We're, we've got the head of the digital strategy team for the Obama campaign. We've I want to go to the Yale. Wait, got, but, but the point Who's is, is the that head of the digital strategy? Teddy Goff. Oh, okay, sure, sure. So so the point is is that you may think oh, I'm going to I'm going to take this class because I want to know I want to run a hospital. So I'm going to go to that class on public health and right. get really excited about the Broadway people. Mm -hmm. That's what education should be, I think. I mean, this is not entirely dissimilar from thinking about blue. In it's many very, ways. right, so, yeah. right. Open it up and then let them shut it down yeah. again. So normally when we wrap up, it's like, hey, get in touch with an email. See you later. Okay, bye. We're going to have to actually take a second here and... I'm going to ask you some questions about how people can reach out of, about these seven or 8,000 things <laughs> that you're doing. Here. So, so first of all, let's start with if I wanted to come to graduate school and work with you two, what would be the first thing I would do? Um, I think if graduate school is right for you, you could go of to course. Yale EDU, then go go to the School of Management, and then there's all sorts of classes you're required to take, and one of them that you're not required to take is this class with me and Jessica. So I think that's the hard way to do it. Uh, the easier way to do it will be to kind of watch this, you know, keep your eye on our uh, on Design Observer, where we're going to announce uh, where our podcast is going to be. That's going to be free and you'll get a little taste of what's happening in the right. classroom at um without the um, uh, application process tuition. tuition and everything else yeah so <laughs> i recommend and that this is first. this is our first class i'm teaching two more classes in the spring and michael and i are going to be doing some other things here and there yeah. so there's uh, a lot so that was my my next 200 questions so that's yeah. great we got that done and then what is the best way to reach either one of you if someone has a question? I'm assuming just through Design Observer. Or... They, yeah, actually, I'm going to make it really easy for your listeners. We both have Yale email addresses. Okay. Yeah. Michael.Beirut at Yale.edu and Jessica.Helfand at Yale.edu. Great. And then the readers should also know that there are two books. Or actually, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there are, it feels like about a dozen or more books between the two of you. But let's just talk about the most recent ones. 
by Michael, how to use graphic design to sell things, explain things, make things look better, make people laugh, make people cry, and every once in a while change the world. Favorite title. <laughs> I'm assuming that I can just go on Amazon and buy that. That is correct, okay. yeah. yeah. And, and from Jessica, design, the invention of desire from Yale University Press. I'm assuming also available. Indeed. Amazon. Um, Rich. Paul. <laughs> this is like the most communicative, well-dressed together group of people. I'm just going to go get pants <laughs> really, as we're soon going, as we're done. We're going to Brooks Brothers right after <laughs> yes. this. Brooks Brothers big and tall for me. And we're just, <laughs> just going to start over. Um, and get our lives to get, you know, in order. It's, it's never a, too light. Never too never, light. <laughs> it is exciting to see two people who are just like, there's no question. You're, like, you're just going to, you know what you're doing today. You know what you're doing tomorrow. And it, it it's fun to see this collaboration. Yeah. This is very exciting. We're very excited. Thank yeah. you so much for having us. Thank this you has been for a doing delightful this. This conversation. Great. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. So this is Track Changes. I'm Paul Ford. Rich Ziotti. And if you need to get in touch with us about anything, contact at postlight.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, we're here to help you. Anything you need, just get in touch. Have a great week, Paul. All right, Rich. Let's get back to work. 